Last week, we started a new sermon series on how we integrate our faith into the marketplace. What role does our, our Christianity have in our vocations? We, we talked about the goodness of work. We looked at the inherent dignity and value of all kinds of work. We cautioned and said, let's be careful about buying into our culture's view of job status, low status jobs should not be demeaning to Christian people. God started out as a gardener. He continued then, he graduated to a carpenter. You know, we shouldn't buy into our culture's view of things because God has sanctified all labor, that, there, that no legitimate work should be, quote, unquote, beneath us as Christians. That's what we talked about last week. Next week, we're going to deal with the question of, um, how do I know what kind of work God is calling me into? question I think is especially applicable to college students and to kids in high school or those who are considering a change in vocation. How do I know what it is I'm supposed to be doing? In order to answer that question, you really have to answer today's question, which is what is the purpose of work to begin with? What is God's intention for human work? And that is what we're looking at in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to begin with. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Notice the con close connection between being made in God's image and this idea of ruling. Andy Crouch in one of his books, and I can't remember the title of it, but it's his latest book on creation, the creating of culture. He has this fascinating observation. He says... They are made to rule, not just a few easily domesticated animals like cattle, chickens, and goldfish, but they are called to rule the entire panoply of the animal kingdom. Think of the first biblical readers. As they're reading Genesis for the first time, they've never seen an airplane. They have never heard of a submarine. The boats that they were accustomed to were these small, rudimentary uh, vessels. How could they have imagined ruling over fish and birds in any meaningful way? Presumably, verses 26 to 28, this command anticipates millennia of cultural developments that would eventually bring us to the point where we truly have the power to shape the destiny of most species on the planet for good or for ill. So at the very beginning, and God is saying that human beings will be responsible for, for the creation in its totality, not just for their immediate neighborhood. I, when I read that, I thought, what an incredible insight. Then we see here in verse 28 what has been famously referred to as the cultural mandate. God tells us to be fruitful 
and multiply, or in this translation, increase in number, and fill the earth. How, why does he tell us to do that? Well, you have to go back to the early, the very first chapter of Genesis, and remember days one through three and days four, four through six. Days one through three, God effectively creates these realms. He creates the day and the night. He creates the, the atmosphere, the sky, and the sea. And he creates the land. That's days one through three. What does he do in days four, four five, and six? He, he fills those realms. So the sun fills the day, the realm of the day. The moon, the realm of the night. Birds, they have dominion over the sky and fish the, the sea. And then the land, is, it's filled with plants and animals and especially with mankind. So we, we see God giving a very specific job description to the first men and women that you are to like intentionally fill the realm of, really, sky, uh, sea, and land. And you're to do it in a different way than the animals do. I mean, we know that animals populate their realms by blind instinct. But we are to, isn't it interesting that God gives us, um, that God gives us sex and procreation as an intimate union? It's not just blind instinct. And we don't end up having... A, 10 litters of children, it's, it's very intentional. It's, I mean, unless you're on fertility drugs, it's one or two children, and it's, it's the product of, of two people intentionally loving one another and doing so. And so not only does he tell us that we are to fill the earth, but in so doing, we build families, we build churches, we build schools, we develop the social world so that there's effectively this support system for human beings to be the social creatures that God had in, intended us to do. So that's the first part in 28 of the cultural mandate, this filling of the realm. The second part in the word that is most, well, it's the it's most um, contentious is the word subdue. Fill the earth and subdue it. Or some of your translations say, fill the earth and have dominion over it. And we get the word dominate from the word dominion. Oh, what, are the, what are the connotations that we have with the word subdue? How do you subdue a little brother or sister? <laughs> I mean, subdue is something we do with criminals. We tackle them and pin them to the ground. Little brothers and sisters, we duct tape them to, to chairs or to light poles. Subdue the creation. I think there was a talk show radio host who ended up saying a few years back that she quoted this verse and she said, basically, this gives, God has given us uh, the, the okay to rape and exploit the planet however we want to. Is that what's going on here? No. It can't be that. Why? Because sin hasn't been introduced into the world yet. That the idea of subduing is just part of of our paradise work. So what does it mean to subdue? Well, I think it's closely related to the the word rule that we've already discussed and the, the phrase image of God in verse 26 and in verse 27. Imago Dei. What does it mean for you and me to be 
to be created in the image of God. And you know, there's volumes written on the topic, and I, I'm not going to exhaust it, but if I were to distill it down to one thing, the early readers of Genesis would have associated image of with statues. Because what was erected over all of the ancient world? Wasn't It was statues of the emperor or the monarch, whoever was ruling at that time. There would be statues all over, all over the city is a representation of the person who is in charge. It's the very thing that's still done today. Think of North Korea, for instance. Everywhere, all over the country, are pictures of Kim Jong-un. His face you know, dominates the billboards, the televisions, because it's a way of saying, here is who is ruling and who is in charge. Well, God has made us to be not only his statues, uh, but we're his like, living, breathing, three-dimensional statues. You and I, all of humanity, is supposed to be this visible representation of the invisible God. Um, We are his little kings and queens who represent his likeness to all of creation. And our work is to bring the benevolent rule and care of God's, of the creator himself, to the world that he has made. Which leads me to the question of what is the purpose of our work? And I, I think that it is, it's all tied up in these words of rule, image of God, being fruitful and subduing. But to me, the key word about the purpose of our work is garden. Isn't it interesting that God puts mankind in a garden? It's not a nature preserve. There's not a single sense in the passage that Adam and Eve are supposed to leave this place in its original pristine condition without ever changing it in any way. I mean, he's not a park ranger. (laughs) Um, But it's also not a city. It's not this cultivated, finished product. The whole idea is that we are put into a garden, and a garden means that there is untapped potential that has to be unlocked by human ingenuity. A garden means that you are, are to, through human intelligence, human ingenuity, through human sweat, human industry, human creativity, you're supposed to tap into all that is potentialized in that, in that place. And I think that's exactly what we, um, we as created beings do. Genesis chapter 1 verse 4, God separates the light from the darkness. And then a few verses later, God's God separates the ocean from the atmosphere. One of the activities of God's creating is he he separates things. And that's one of the creation activities that you and I do. Let's take, for instance, grain as an example. What do you have to first do with grain? You have to harvest it. How do you harvest it? It's with a sickle, and you have to separate it from the ground. And then what do you do after that? Well, then you have to <clears throat> separate it from, um, separate the germ from the chaff. And then you have to grind it up, which means separating it into even further small little bits and pieces. And then you have to uh, combine it with water and a little bit of yeast and salt, and then you bake it. But the essential pattern for work is you separate things, and you recombine them, and you rearrange them, 
in order to make something even more magnificent than was originally made. So another example of this, probably one of the first activities that Adam and Eve ever did was they went out and they found some wood and they turned it into a table and chairs. They gave form, something that was formless, they shaped and formed into something that was, um, that, that, that was better. They took the goodness of the natural world. Because we would all agree, trees are good and wood is good to make something even better. So part of the purpose of work is to take the formless and to shape it into something that serves the good of human society. Really, that's kind of the, the pattern of work, is you take good and you make it better, and then eventually it gets to glorious. So grain is good, bread is better, and think of the very best bread that you've ever tasted in your whole life. Well, that bread is glory. Um, eggs are good. Omelets are better. Omelets with chorizo and homemade salsa is glory. <laughs> Trees are good. A beautifully wrought wooden chair is very good. And a maple bat with the words Louisville Slugger burned into the center of it is glory. And that, that's the pattern, I think, that we find of human work in paradise, the pattern that gets passed on to us. Let's see one more thing in verse 19 in chapter 2 of Genesis. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. And whatever the the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all all the livestock, all the birds of the air, and all the beasts of of the field. Now if you're going through Genesis, it's kind of noteworthy. Why does God have Adam name creatures. I mean, it's not as though God couldn't have named them himself. In fact, you go to chapter one, what was God doing throughout in chapter one? He's naming stuff. He's calling things sea, land, uh, air, um, day, night. Why does he have Adam then go on to name? Well, because in naming, effectively, Adam is doing one of the most creative activities that is like humanly possible. Uh, what, it, what involves Adam's naming of the creatures? Well, he first of all has to observe the animals. He has to study the animals. He has to pay attention to how they move and what they sound like, all of that. And then he has to create something out of nothing. I mean, imagine looking at a squirrel and, and saying rhinoceros or, or a rhinoceros and saying squirrel. Um, He's creating this out. There was never such a word before, but he's, he's having to form it, and he's having to say, is that the right fit? Like, what's the best thing that we can call you? And it's, it's immensely creative. I also think that it probably worked through trial and error. If you think about any creative endeavor, be it a poem or a song or a painting, they never come out perfect the first time. You always end up having to discard elements of the creative process. Crinkle up that first name and throw it to the side in order to find the best name, the the best thing that fits this creation. I think that is what, all of that is what God is talking about in the garden, about the purpose of work. We, We make distinctions. We separate thing from thing and combine 
thing from other th- things into new things. We, we rearrange raw material to develop its untapped potential. We make things that are beautiful even more beautiful and things that are not terribly useful more useful. We, we take already good things in God's creation and we make it better. Isn't that what an architect does? Doesn't an architect take steel, wood, concrete, and glass and separate the two, but they can combine the two and mix in a little bit of creativity and create something which is for the good of human society? Isn't that what a musician does? They rearrange the, the raw material of wood into a clarinet or into a flute or metal into a trumpet, and then they rearrange the human breath. And they have to control it in unique and special ways, and they, they mix it up with some creativity and it produces music. To subdue the world as an image bearer, um, it means to harness the world in such a way that we create more beautiful, more helpful, wonderful things which serve other people and, and serve um, all of creation. So let's move on for I guess the last half of the sermon or the last third of the sermon to talk about practical considerations. Uh, what do you say to a person who they they hear all of what I all of the sermon thus far, but they say, My job just doesn't feel like that. <laughs> like, I can't I don't feel like I have anything creative or especially meaningful that comes out of my daily my daily work. What do you say to the guy who's on an assembly line in Detroit, Michigan, screwing rivets into a car door, you know, door after door, eight, eight to five every day. In Al Arisman's book, The Accidental Executive, which is patterned on the life of Joseph, there's some excellent interviews in the book. And in one of them, one of the interviewees, he gives the story of two men who are working in the Middle Ages they're doing the same job. They're hauling rocks to a construction site. And the first guy says, I hate my job. All I do is move rocks all day, and it's this difficult, hot, dirty work. And the second guy says, I love my job. I'm building a cathedral. And he goes on, for about 10 years of my life, I thought that if I just got the right job, I would be happy. I was trying to derive meaning from my work. So for about a decade, I... I jumped, I hopped from place to place and job to job, wondering what I should do for my career. But in time, I came to realize we don't derive meaning from our work so much as we bring meaning to our work. Or it's the perspective that we bring to our work that, that really makes or breaks it. It's, it's either a life-giving, uh, creation-cultivating perspective or a life-draining Perspective. You take a hospice worker, for example, like the one who took care of my mother-in-law. I could describe that job as changing bedpans for a living for people who are going to die anyway. Or I could, wor- I could view work as creating an environment of love for people in the last few precious months of their lives. In both of those instances, I'm still changing bedpans, but, but one is... One is a life-giving perspective. So what I would say to the assembly line worker is thank you. Because without your work, we, we couldn't fulfill the cultural mandate. I mean, it's, it's necessary 
Good transportation is necessary to fill the earth. And good transportation is necessary to feed the earth. We couldn't get food and goods and anything like that across the earth without having dependable transportation. So, so thank you. You are doing something that's meaningful. As to your existential struggle of like, ah, oh, I just, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of that. This is just mindless and non-creative. It is true that some people are going to have to look outside of their vocations for more creative outlets for them to kind of tap into uh, the, this, the stuff that I'm talking about in Genesis 1 and 2. But there is, everybody has the opportunity to do so. Like there is garden work, creative, useful, life-giving work always around us if we have eyes to see it. Every one of us are kings and queens representing our God, and every one of us are sub-creators, We are always creating something. So, for instance, linguists, when they analyze language, they say, you know, language is so fruitful, so remarkably fruitful, that they hypothesize every single human being that's that's lived on the planet has spoken an entirely unique sentence sometime in their life. Um, A completely original sentence. Or if you play in a band you have probably created an entirely original song. (laughs) It may not have been very good, but nobody else has created those particular combinations of notes, melodies, and rhythms. Garden work, creative work, is I think it's everywhere if you have eyes to see it. Second practical consideration is it just is it's important for us not to underestimate the good work performed by non-Christians. Sometimes non-Christians are better sub-creators than we Christians are. They may not realize they're doing it on behalf of humanity as part of Adam and Eve's cultural mandate, but in fact they are, and they do it. We should not minimize the incredible contributions non-Christians have made to human flourishing in human society. They've been so substantial we should place a high value and appreciation on all human work done by all people as an expression of God's creation care of the planet. And it's why those of you who are in positions of power, maybe you're HR and you can hire and you're fire, or you're an entrepreneur and you can hire a fire, it's very important that we guard ourselves against Christian nepotism of promoting people who frankly don't do their jobs as well as they could, but, but we promote them just by virtue of them being a Christian. Have you ever seen that happen before? No, we should have a, a high value and appreciation of all human work, and sometimes non-Christians are doing that better than we are. Thirdly, third practical consideration, is there a uniquely Christian way to fill a cavity? The answer is yes and no. <laughs> is there a unique, uniquely Christian way to repair an ACL? Uh, Yes and no. I mean, no, you're going to fill the cavity or do the root canal in the exact same way. And both, that that way is is good stewardship of the created world. But then it goes back again to the perspective. Do you have in your work the sense that I am his image bearer, king and queen, creating new things or serving people in a way that supports life? Um, That, if we... If we have perspectives like that, surely that changes the way we approach our jobs. 
It, 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 I don't know even how to express it, but I, I just think it has to make a difference. The Christian ought to say that my ambition is to do, is to help cultivate this world well, to serve people, to create things that serve the common good well. And if that ends up being financially prosperous, then great. I mean, that, great, but that's not my primary goal. Most people's goal when they but when they look at their work is just tell me how much it pays but the, or tell me how much status and prestige there is. But the Christian's goal is, is to see things just is differently. So the essential pattern of work is from good to better to glorious. And that, I think, is the picture that we see of Jesus' work. So Jesus' work begins in the incarnation in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he's born in Bethlehem. That's good. That's really good. Then he spends 33 years ministering to people, preaching, teaching, healing. That's, that's even better, you could say. Then he, his work carries him to the cross where he dies as atonement for sin. That's even better. Then he's resurrected from the dead on the third day. Then he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. How does Jesus' work culminate? Good to better to better to better to glory as he returns and brings the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, to the earth. So he brings a heavenly city. The Bible begins in a paradise garden, and it ends with Jesus returning in this glorious heavenly city where he's seated on the throne forever. And that, um, that's what we're all looking forward to.